Book of Jonah, chapter 1. join with me in prayer. Lord Christ, our Savior, we come before Thee on this Lord's Day. God, we see Thee lifted up above all things. We know that Thou art the Creator of all, the Sustainer of all. And that thou workest all things for the good of those whom thou hast called, for the good of those who love thee. Therefore, O Lord, help us to love thee more. Send us not on a fool's errand. Lord, as the world is caught up in trinkets, help us to be caught up in thee. Our eyes fixed on thee by the power of thy Holy Spirit. Lord, as thou hast washed us the water of thy word with the blood of Christ, that we might be holy and blameless before you in love. God, without thee, we can do nothing. We ask for thy help. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask, O Holy Spirit, that thou would be with us, that would lead us and guide us into all truth, all wisdom. All holiness, Lord, that thou wouldst help me to preach thy word. That thou would give ears of understanding, of adoration for thy son Jesus to these thy people, my hearers. God, thou art worthy to be praised. All the cattle on a thousand hills are thine, O Lord. The depths and the wisdom which thou hast demonstrated in Christ cannot even be fathomed. Those good things which thou hast prepared for them that love thee. O Lord, but what is that to thee, to having thee, that we might be people who know thee, who live on our knees and walk by faith? We ask for thy blessing and thy guidance and thy help this Lord's day. We come before thee trembling and full of joy, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, looking to our Savior, Jesus Christ. O Jesus, that we might know thee all the better. We might savor thee and enter into sweet communion with thee more frequently. Lord, we lift up all these things unto thee. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Jonah chapter 1. Going to start a series on Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, let's read it together. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. 
But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going down to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go unto them, unto Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried, Every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be, that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said, Every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then he said unto them, Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause is this evil upon us? What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we say unto thee? What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempest. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land. But they could not, for the sea wrought, and it was temptuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Dear congregation, there is one antagonist in the book of Jonah, one villain, and it is Jonah himself. He's the bad guy in the book. He is the anti-hero in Jonah This is strange indeed, is it not, that a prophet of Jehovah would be the antagonist in a prophetic book? But this teaches us much about our own sinfulness and our own imperfection. This teaches us much about our own tendencies towards disobedience and unfaithfulness, does it not? The theme of the entire book of Jonah can be summed up as salvation is of the Lord, which Jonah himself says in chapter 2, verse 9. The book was likely penned by Jonah himself. And this little book is interesting in that it is placed in the minor prophets, but it is more of a biographical narrative of the prophet than a prophet prophecy. There's only one sermon in the entire book, 
unlike the other minor prophets that are basically entire sermons. And it only consists of five words in Hebrew. Namely, chapter 3, verse 4, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Although we know less about Jonah than some of the other prophets, the scriptures do tell us about him. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23-29, through 29, we learn quite a bit about Jonah. We learn that he prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II around 760 BC and that he was used of God to restore the whole coast of Israel. He was contemporaries with the prophets Hosea and Amos. God used Jonah to deliver a large portion of Israel and was now calling him to go into the Assyrians, the people in Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and to bring them to repentance and faith as well. Now, let's address the whale in the room. What do we make of the story of Jonah and the whale? What do we make of it? Is it a stumbling block to belief? Is it too fanciful to believe this story? Is it too offensive to scientific facts and common sense? Maybe we should take it as an allegory and to keep some semblance of our intellect intact before a watching modern world. We'll just take it as an allegory. That fixes the problem. Can we lose a literal interpretation of this story and still have an intact faith? I answer no. None of those are options for us. None of those are an option for us. Why? Because this is the word of God. It's the word of God. It's inspired by God. It's given by inspiration of God. It's what he has preserved and handed down to us. It is offensive to us in our modern age because we are offensive to it. If we are Christians, let's just put this in perspective. If we're really Christians, then we believe the following. We believe that one person of the triune being whom we worship as one God entered into human existence as a babe through a virgin. That this God-man lived for 33-ish years without sinning. He perfectly obeyed the whole law of God. He was crucified, and when he was crucified, God imputed to him all of his, all who would ever believe in him, their sin unto him, and he died in their place on the cross. He was buried, he remained buried, he remained dead for three days, then he rose from the dead. He walked around Judea for 40 days, talking to people, doing miracles, eating lunch. Then before a watching crowd, of people. He ascended into heaven where he now sits on the right hand of God interceding on, our, interceding on our behalf and he's going to come back on the clouds one day. To believe that a guy was swallowed by a big fish and then spat out on dry ground is nothing compared to that. If I can believe the, the former, the latter is no big deal. Furthermore, we jeopardize the gospel itself when we deny the literal interpretation, the literal story of Jonah. How? How? To deny that Jonah was truly swallowed up by a giant fish and was three days later spat out onto a dry land would be to call 
The Lord Jesus Christ, a liar. A liar. Jesus himself said that this really happened. That, that should shut our mouths there. Jesus said that it really happened. And that just as the narrative of Jonah was true, Jesus said, in the same way, it is true that I will die and rise again. That is the sign to this generation, he said. If we have no Jonah, we have no Jesus. Simple. Now, there's people who deny Jonah. I'm not saying that they're unsaved. I'm saying they're inconsistent and they have an incomplete faith. Their faith does not remain intact because they've hacked a chunk of the Bible and chucked it out. Having read the chapter, let us observe four aspects of our text today. Number one, Jonah's call. Jonah's call. Number two, Jonah's disobedience. Number three, the consequences of Jonah's disobedience. Number four, God's grace in the midst of Jonah's disobedience. First, Jonah's call. See this in verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Notice first in this call of Jonah that it was the Lord's calling of Jonah, the word of the Lord. When the Lord calls us, dear believer, through the word, through the preaching, through conference, We should be quick to listen. Quick to listen. God is speaking, not somebody else. God is speaking to us. The word of the Lord is a word of authority. We should submit to it. Also notice about Jonah's call, that it was a call of obedience and action. He says, go. He says, rise, go. It's a call of action, to do something. When God calls us, dear believers, we should be quick to obey. We ought to not take our time and get around to it when we're done doing whatever it is we're doing or say, hold on, God. I'll be right there when I'm done doing what I'm doing. Let me finish up here and then I'll get to you. Often, great men of God throughout history and women of God, and I've experienced this in my own life, if you have you ever woken up in the middle of the night with a strong impression on your heart to seek God's face, take it. Don't waste it. Take it. Rise from your bed and pray. Or in your bed. But seek God's face. He's calling. He's beckoning you towards him. He wants to commune with you. Take it. Also notice this about the call of Jonah. It reveals God's love for sinners. Jonah was aware that it was a gracious mission he was being sent on. He says that, In chapter 4, verse 2, when he's complaining about, God, you're so gracious, that's why I didn't want to go. God called Jonah to Nineveh because he is merciful and because he is loving, even to far off and distant sinners. Sometimes we feel off. Sometimes we feel distant. And God beckons us close in Christ. He calls us to return. Return, my bride. This calling of Jonah of Jonah to Nineveh foreshadows the Gentiles being brought into the church after the resurrection of Christ. Before this, in the Old Testament, people came from other nations and became part of the people of Israel, but there were not many missionaries sent out to bring in people to Jehovah. 
This is one of those instances. And Jonah foreshadows Christ. He prefigures Christ. He is a type and shadow of Christ. And in Christ, all people are brought in. So it demonstrates this width and breadth of God's love. While Israel, at this same time, is receiving threatenings of God's judgment for sin, the Gentiles are receiving promises of God's forgiveness of sin. It's pretty amazing. Now, in Christ, in the New Testament dispensation, God calls all people to faith. The Apostle Paul, while preaching at Mars Hill, said the following, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness, by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him up from the dead. That's Acts 17, verses 30, 31. God has demonstrated his love for us in Christ. Romans 5, 8. Let us now respond in faith and come to him through Christ. Remembering what Jesus said in John six thirty seven. That all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So in this call of Jonah, where we see God's love and the breadth and the width and the depth of his love towards sinners, even distant, far off sinners, let us realize that we live in this dispensation now. We live in the new covenant era, where Christ has been fully revealed, where Christ has been fully displayed, the Holy Spirit given to the church. And we must now go forth. And bid all people to come unto Christ. And bid ourselves time and time again to receive that beautiful invitation given to us in Jesus. And we, every Lord's Day, when we take the supper, we see that symbolized before us. And we actually partake of the supper in faith. And we commune with Christ through it. Second point. Jonah's disobedience. We see this in verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice a few things about Jonah's disobedience. Why did Jonah disobey? It's a strange story. Jonah, the bad guy, after we've seen that he was used mightily of God in the past, now he's disobeying. Why? There's a few possibilities as to why Jonah is disobeying. Jonah may have been afraid of the great wickedness of the Ninevites and their great number. It was a very large city. He might have been afraid. But more likely, it was probably because of his nationalism. Because of his nationalism. He was a prophet to Israel. He was a prophet to the people of God. And Jonah had done great works for God in turning a large portion of Israel, the whole coast thereof, unto God, back to Jehovah. Why would he now go, as a prophet, to Israel's enemy, Assyria? Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And him being a prophet, he knew that in 40 years, Assyria would be the very instrument God would use to judge Israel. Why would I want to go? So that's a possible reason, is nationalism. In reality, though, we have no reason given as to why Jonah disobeyed. And what do we learn by this silence? Sometimes from the silence of scriptures, we learn more. 
or just as much. What do we learn from this silence as to why Jonah disobeyed? That there is no good reason to disobey God. That's, that's what we learn. There is no good reason. If it would have listed a bunch of reasons, we could, I resonate with that reason. I feel sympathy for Jonah here. It just gives us no reason, so it shows us that there's no good reason to disobey God. Another thing we notice about Jonah's disobedience is this. In his disobedience, Jonah rose up to flee. He rose up to flee. God had called him to rise and go in obedience. But Jonah chooses to rise and go in disobedience. Disobedience, dear church, requires effort on our behalf. Disobedience requires effort. It is often wrongly believed that disobedience is the easy way out. It's the easy way out. God calls us to obey, and we choose to disobey because we think it's, it's easier to do it this way. This is false. Disobedience, disobeying God, takes just as much effort as obedience. And in the long run, as we see in the story of Jonah, often takes more effort to disobey. Because you have to backtrack. You have to get swallowed up by a great fish and spat back where you were supposed to be. Oftentimes it takes more effort to disobey. Disobedience, in other words, is pointless and destructive. God's purposes will not be thwarted. Disobeying him, disobeying the thing he's given right in front of you, dear believer, is not going to then make the task just disappear. It's not just going, no, now, now you don't have to obey. Oh, well, you're still going to have to obey. Notice also this. What lengths Jonah goes to disobey. He sets out to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish possibly was on the far western side of the Mediterranean by Spain. We're, we're talking modern-day Iraq, Spain. As far as that world was concerned, as far as that world at that time was concerned, it's the other side of the world. He goes as far away as he possibly can. Jonah plans to flee to the other side of the world to avoid obeying God. But what do we see? We cannot escape what God has required of us, dear church. He will have his demands met. Another thing we notice about his disobedience is this. His disobedience interrupted his communion with God. His intimate communion with God. Our text says that Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. Literally in Hebrew, he fled from the face of Jehovah. From before his face. Disobedience necessitates. Disobedience necessitates our leaving off close communion and fellowship with God. Now I want to be careful here. I want to be careful here. Because some people say, and it's not necessarily wrong, but some people do say it fractures our communion with God. Fractures our fellowship with God. Or fractures our fellowship with God, excuse me. And the Bible says in 1 John that we have fellowship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I would say it fractures our communion. We have to withdraw from God to sin. But I wouldn't necessarily think it's 100% accurate to say it fractures our fellowship with him. God does not leave or forsake us. Disobedience necessitates our leaving off close communion with God. It's a choice we make. Now think of it this way. I would imagine that very few murders, very few adulteries, very few thefts take take place during someone's morning devotions. 
Or while a Christian is engaged in some other spiritual exercise, they're giving themselves to prayer, and then they murder someone in that moment. Probably not the most common occurrence. So in order to commit some willful and gross sin, we must flee out of the presence of God, flee off communing with him. Christians cannot willfully sin before God's face. They must leave off walking in the spirit and begin walking in the flesh. The Apostle Paul commenting on this says in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, that ye cannot do the things that ye would. And this is why, in the midst of some willful disobedience, because we're always sinning, I'm talking about some willful disobedience like Jonah Rise, go to Nineveh. Nope, going to Tarshish. In the midst of that, we don't feel close to God. Because we are not close to God in that moment when we enter into some gross sin. And it's our fault. It's a choice we've made. It's not that that fellowship is fractured or that God has forsaken us. We simply left communing with him to go sin. And this should cause us to fear, dear church. This is the thing that causes me to fear the most. And all who know, All Christians who know what it is to taste and to see that the Lord is good while in intimate communion with him, in the the sweet hours where you spend in prayer, know what a true horror it is to be taken off from that wonderful state by some sin. Third point, the consequences of Jonah's disobedience. We see this in verses 4 through 7. Verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken, meaning it was about to be smushed, crushed. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said, Everyone to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. The consequences of Jonah's disobedience. A few aspects of it. Jonah, we see here, was shamed by non-believers. Firstly, in this, that the mariners were afraid and cried every man to his, unto his God. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and lay and was fast asleep. Seeing that they were in real danger, the pagan mariners, these heathen people, these non-believers, all cried out to their false gods. Yet Jonah, a prophet of the one true God, Jehovah, sleeps in the hole of the ship. And this was no pacified sleep. This was no restful sleep acquiescing in God. He was not sleeping because of some clear conscience and faith in God. Jonah's sleep was not like the sleep that Jesus had in Mark 4 as the wind and the waves beat against that small fishing boat. Jesus slept in the storm because he knew that he was its creator and its stiller. He was not afraid. He had faith in his God. Jonah slept not by faith. Slept not by faith, but to quiet his conscience. We've all had those times 
wherein we're in the midst of some stressful situation, some depression, some thing that we're going through, and we just want to go to bed. We just want to go to sleep, to, to sleep it away. Because then you're not thinking about it. You avoid having to deal with this issue or think about it by going to sleep. And this is what Jonah was doing. Jonah's nap tells us something else as well. It was, an in, it was indicative of his spiritual state. This sleep was a type of representation of his spiritual stupor and insensitivity. The storm had been sent because of Jonah. It was his fault. It was his fault. It was sent to get his attention, and yet spiritually he's sleeping through it. He's avoiding having to deal with his own situation he's gotten himself into. And dear believer, how often, how often we sit in some spiritual stupor, some spiritual trance, sitting in self-pity and self-loathing, crying, woe is me, while God is attempting to speak to us. He's doing something. He's working. And we're having a spiritual nap to avoid. Jonah lay oblivious, slumbering like some old dog, while God was working. While God was working. We want to avoid that in our lives. We want to be awake spiritually to hear God speaking to us and see what he's doing. See him beckoning us back. You've strayed a bit. Come back. But if we're closing our ears, if we lay like this prophet pouting in the basement with our ears plugged up with our fingers, it's shameful what Jonah did. Jonah's shame was multiplied when the non-believers called him out in verse 6. So the shipmaster came to him and said to him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. Anyone who has ever had unbelievers call them out? Anyone who's ever had unbelievers call them out for their sinful neglect of spiritual duties and acting like a Christian? Knows how shameful this can be. Knows the feeling of that shame. Abraham and Isaac, they knew the shame. They knew the shame. For they both had pagan rulers. Pagan rulers call them out for lying about their wives. They said, this is my sister. This is my sister. When you go into the land, tell them I am his sister. They did this to protect their own safety, to provide for their own safety, that they might not be killed for how beautiful their wives were. But they did this with no regard for the safety of, of their wives, that they might be taken by other men and made their wives. They were lying. They got caught lying about it. Sinful disobedience, disbelief, uh, sinful disobedience, dear believers, is almost always selfish and puts others in danger. Puts others in danger. The Apostle Peter was also called on his sin and shamed publicly. During Jesus' trial, when the young maiden pointed out that he was one of Jesus' disciples. He denied it, but the girl said, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. It's Matthew 26, 73. Jesus tells us this, though. That non-believers, seeing the beauty of religion in us, seeing our consistency of lifestyle with our profession will be drawn to God through such a demonstration of godliness. Non-believers should, as he said, see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. 
It is both shameful and harmful when the opposite is true. And just like Peter, who began to curse, to blaspheme, to deny Jesus when called out for his sin, he dug in his heels. So too, Jonah does not own up to his sin when he's called out here. He's called out by his heathen shipmates and he still doesn't own up. They didn't know at this time that the dire situation they were in was not their fault until God revealed it to them. Until God revealed it to them. Jonah was just going to sit back, just going to remain in the ship, hope this thing passes, hope I can still continue on in my rebellion. Thankfully, but shamefully, God revealed the cause of the storm to the sailors in verse 7 when they casted lots that fell on Jonah. The lot fell on Jonah by God's hand. Remember Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. After being shamed by the unbelieving crew, Jonah should have then fessed up. He should have confessed that the storm was his fault. Hey guys, this is my fault. But instead, God must reveal it to the crew. In this action... Shame is not only brought upon Jonah, but also God. Also God. That's the next aspect we want to look at about Jonah's disobedience. God's name is shamed in Jonah's disobedience. In verses 8 through 10. Then they said unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Notice that the unbelieving crew basically had to milk it out of Jonah. He wouldn't just tell them the lot falls on Jonah and they must still ask what's going on. Jonah finally tells them who he is in verse 9 as we saw. And this must have been a shocking revelation to the crew. We can hear them possibly asking, the the one who has caused all of this danger, who has brought us into this predicament, is a servant of the God of all creation? Not just one of our pagan gods that have limited power over certain things, but indeed the, the God of heaven who hath made the sea and the dry land? This man serves that God? And he's the one that brought this upon us? Jonah's words do not match up with his actions, do they? He is supposed to be a servant of God, a man who fears God. He's supposed to be a servant of Jehovah God. Instead, he is shamefully fleeing from him and bringing all who are with him into danger. It is true that our actions often speak louder than our words. People will forget what we say. They'll forget even the heartfelt pleas of the gospel. Our friends and family and coworkers, they'll forget those things, but they won't forget what we do. They won't forget what we do. They'll remember our actions. The Apostle Paul, remember, even after he was converted, he's preaching the gospel. The church was still afraid of him. The church was still afraid of him because his reputation preceded him. His reputation preceded him. He had sorely persecuted the church. Notice also that the inconsistency of Jonah's life was a stumbling block a stumbling block for the pagan men. In verse 10, it says they were exceedingly afraid and asked him, why hast thou done this? Our witness, dear believers, can be hampered. 
by our inconsistent life, then the faithfulness, sometimes people will then ask, why hast thou done this? Why have you acted this way when you're telling me to do the opposite? Jonah's unfaithful disobedience was selfish and dangerous. He not only put his own life at risk by his disobedience, but he put, the, he put the lives of the men in the ship with him to risk. Furthermore, this was the Mediterranean. It's a shipping central. As people are traveling to and fro, all the other ships in the Mediterranean are now put at risk. Are now put at risk. They're struggling, fighting for their lives. Possibly people died. Possibly they lost provision and, and things that they were selling and trading. They're struggling. They're fighting against the wind, not knowing that it's because of some un, uh, unfaithful believer cowering in the hull of a ship a couple miles away. They have no idea. On this, I would like to mention as well that it's a deception of Satan, dear believers. It's a deception of Satan that causes us to think that they're is such thing as private sin. All sin is corporate as a community, as a church. All sin is corporate. Our sins have corporate consequences. Our sin affects all those around us. All those around us. Our private sin affects others by our ability to minister to them, to love on them, to care for them, to be there for them, being hampered. Our, our moods and our attitudes, which are affected by our sin, thus affect our interactions with people. Our sin, when it's against another person especially, affects their emotional and their spiritual health, which in turn affects those around them. It's a vicious cycle. The church in Corinth, remember, when they had to excommunicate a member at Paul's command, a wicked member, they had to excommunicate him. They were corporately affected by this man's sin. Peter's sin of Judaizing, falling back into works-based salvation, keeping the law, affected the spiritual health of the church in Galatia. David's sin, David's sin, threw the entire nation of Israel into civil war. Our sins are never private. Even if the, the, the fallout isn't civil war, it always affects those around us. The sailors then ask, what is to be done to fix the situation? They ask this in verse 11. And Jonah informs them in verse 12 to throw him overboard. And still more shame is brought upon Jonah and God. What is the heathen crew's response? Verses 13 and 14. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not. For the sea wrought and was temptuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee. Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. That's their response. These heathen men, these pagan men, these unbelievers. That was their response. They showed more humane sensitivity and spiritual concern than the prophet of Jehovah who was sent to preach the gospel to the Ninevites. Amazing. They did not wish to throw him overboard. They wished to save his life. They had more regard for human life than he did. Not only is he shamed by this, which is shameful indeed, but the heathen men are even then now crying out and praying to the Lord, Jehovah. The unbelievers cry out to God in verse 14, seeking the salvation of Jonah, seeking their own salvation. Their lives might be spared. All the while, 
Jonah has still not even uttered so much as a syllable in prayer to God. Yet here these pagans are, these unbelievers, praying to God for deliverance. Jonah has not prayed once, and he showed no concern for their lives, even though it was he that placed them in this situation. The heathen men even showed more understanding of God's sovereign purposes than did Jonah. They humbly acquiesced, and they said, For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. All the meanwhile, Jonah's fighting against God. Notice this. The wickedness of the righteous, the wickedness of the righteous, and the righteousness of the wicked brings shame on the name and people of God. Lastly, notice this about his wickedness. Jonah is then punished for it in verse 15. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Jonah had no one to blame but himself as he sat there bobbing in the sea. He had no one to blame but himself. He got what he deserved. He was cast overboard because of his disobedience and faithlessness. Sin is costly. We have to keep this in mind when we choose to sin. Sin is costly, dear believer. The punishment was at God's hand. But Jonah, he was a believer, not a very good one, but a believer nonetheless, was punished from God's love and not from God's hatred. Remember Hebrews 12, 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Oftentimes, dear believer, oftentimes, the valleys of the shadow of death, which we walk through, are hewn out of the rock with our own hands. They're hewn out of the rock with our own hands. Fourth, last point. God's grace in the midst of Jonah's disobedience. God's grace. Verses 16 and 17. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. First, we see that God was gracious to the sailors. The sea ceased from raging when they obeyed the prophet's command to throw him overboard. Their lives were spared physically. Their physical lives were spared. Though they deserved all the suffering they were enduring, though they deserved to sink and die because of their pagan idolatry, yet God was merciful and he delivered their lives. But more so, he not only delivered their physical lives, it would seem right from this text that he also delivered their souls. He also delivered their souls. He brought them into acquaintance with the living God through this. Even in the midst of the prophet's disobedient sin, God used him to bring this crew unto salvation. Truly, salvation is of the Lord. He saves whom he wills. God states in scripture, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This leads the Apostle Paul to conclude in Romans 9, 16, So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. We ought to praise God that he chooses to save whomsoever he desires. Salvation is of the Lord. Also, take heart and notice that God often uses our mistakes and our sins, as well as our obedience, to fulfill his own purposes, for they are his own purposes. Remember, that God used the wickedness of Joseph's brothers when they sold him into Egyptian slavery out of jealousy. He used that to deliver an entire region from famine and to fulfill his covenant promises to Abraham. 
when his brothers were finally brought to repentance, Joseph reminded them in Genesis 50, verse 20, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Next, God was gracious to Jonah, in verse 17, by swallowing him up with the fish he prepared. Although Jonah deserved to perish in the waves for his grievous sin, yet God delivered him through that great fish. He spared his life. He spared his life so that he might use Jonah. Jonah might continue to be used to fulfill his merciful plans for Nineveh. He could have just raised up somebody else. Although the belly of the great fish was a kind of hell, a sheol of sorts, yet it was the means by which Jonah was preserved. Jonah did not deserve a second chance, but he received one anyway. Now, dear believer, please remember this, that it is by God's grace that sometimes we are not allowed to have the things that we wish and desire to do. It seems unpleasant. It even seems harsh sometimes. But God loves us too much to give us a rock when we ask for it in prayer. And he'd rather give us a piece of bread when we ask for a scorpion. The frustration, notice this, the frustration, dear believer, of our own plans and our own desires is often God's hand of mercy and blessing upon us. Lastly, and we'll close with this, God is gracious towards us in the greater Jonah. Jonah, remember, is a foreshadowing of Christ. Jesus himself points back to Jonah as the prefiguring sign of his death, burial, and resurrection in Matthew 12, verses 38 through 41. The the Pharisees, they come, they say, we would seek a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Paul tells us that the resurrection of Christ is the crux of our faith. And that if Christ be not risen, our faith is in vain. We are of all men to be most pitied. Thus, Jonas, Jonah serves as a constant reminder Jonah serves as a constant reminder, dear church, that salvation is of the Lord and that this salvation is found in Christ alone. As we continue our study in Jonah, dear church, let us keep our eyes on the living Christ who died and rose again for our sins. Let us cry out more and more faith, O Lord. Let us have more faith in Christ. Let us have a richer, more intimate communion With him, salvation is of the Lord, by and in Christ alone, through faith alone. Therefore, O Lord, grant us faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee, and we ask, O Lord, that thou would bless the preaching of this word, that thou would write upon our hearts and cause us to see Christ, the greater Jonah. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.